Kelly, I've got mixed up confusion. <laughs> no preamble. Man, and it's a killing me. There's just too many people. And they're all too hard to please. The days of preamble are behind us. They're indeed behind us, Kelly. We are deep in the band month. That's right. It doesn't flow nope. <laughs> like Woody Guthrie month does. But the band month is a thing. Trademark. Sign on the window. This week, we are looking at two records. If you missed the very first episode, I explained in detail how we were going about the band. But I'll sum it up really quickly. There's a band called Alkaline Trio. They toured with their records going from earliest to latest and playing live shows with the two of them. It's an interesting idea. You can do this pretty much with any band that you love. Take their first record, take their latest record. What if they played a show with just that material? Would you be into it? Would you not be into it? More than likely, you probably wouldn't be into it because you have connection to the band when they're younger or whatever the case may be. So we're taking the latest album uh, with the earliest album. So last week we did music from Big Pink and we contrasted it with the last output that they did as the band from the 1990s. This week we're going to be taking their second record, which is titled The Band, also known as The Brown Album, which I hate, and, uh, or the self-titled. Mm. And we're contrasting it with their second-to-last output, which we're going to call Islands, because there are other things and live albums and blah, blah, blah. But Islands is the final album that was released as The Band, and this was right when they were breaking up with The Last Waltz. So we're going to be talking about Islands first today, and we're going to be talking about The Band second. So Kelly... Just straight up these two albums, contrast it with last week. How are you feeling about the band? How do you feel about these in general? They were more similar than the last week's albums, yes, but not very similar. Yeah, uh, one uh, was great songwriting and musicality, and the other one I couldn't figure out who the target demographic was for. Good. I cannot wait to figure out which one of which we're talking about. Let's start with the one that has no demographic. Islands. 1977. Who was this made for? Right? It's it's a great question. As Robbie Robertson admitted later on, this was scraped together to fulfill the 10 record contract that they had with Columbia Records. uh, With Capitol Records. Um, And this was the the final uh, full length with all five band members. Of course, Robbie Robertson was not... A part of the 90s um, and, and neither was Richard Manuel because he passed away so that was not part of the band as we listened to them last week uh, but this one he compared to um, there was a, a famous odds um, there was an album by the who called odds and sods which was just b-sides and like live material and whatever apparently this was like a kind of a new thing to do at the time when they Mm -hmm. released that. But today we would see it as like a standard B-side album, a standard like collection of seven inches and, you know, just comp songs, covers covers popped on. Yeah. So a lot of bands we listen to do this. Mm -hmm. So this is very much in our wheelhouse. So thinking about it like that, I think makes a lot more sense, especially with the song about Christmas. Makes more sense that it's just a collection. Yeah. So this is a collection of stuff that just kind of exists. And here we go. So, uh, of course, just to run down our band, we've got Rick Danko on bass, Levon Helm playing the drums, Garth Hudson, international treasure, playing keyboard, 
Uh, he plays piccolo on this, saxophone, organ, everything. Richard Manuel, of course, is doing vocals and keyboard, and Robbie Robertson is on guitar, and he also sings a song on this record as well. Hmm. We also have old friends, Tom Malone, uh, from last week. He was doing all the horns on um, uh, the dance dance song. Oh, Spirit of Dance. Spirit of Dance. Wow. Nice memory. Tom Malone's back uh, with the horns. We got Jim Gordon also on horns. We've got John Simon, who's kind of their... Friend, he's kind of on all the records. Uh, he's playing horn and keyboards as well. And then we've got Larry Packer on violin. So we'll go through the songs of this and just kind of suss out what we like and kind of don't like. So let's start with the start from the top, Kelly. Right as Rain, written by Robert Robertson, vocals by Richard Manuel. So Richard Manuel starting, I believe, every record. But I guess that's yet to be proven. I can't think of it off the top of my head. But so far, he's 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 every single record has him. The first uh, song of the album, it bore the brunt of my fury. Oh. <laughs> so I was like, um, this is like the adult contemporary sound of the islands. That's why it's called the islands. Yeah, Garth's sax is definitely Ugh, the sax. Vibe. Yeah. I can't, I can't. Uh-huh. Why? why? I, I wrote, that sax is going to be divisive. <laughs> yeah, I hate it. I hate it so much. Uh, it kind of reminded me of a, it reminded me of as if I've been to one, like a sci-fi merry-go-round. The organ. Uh, I don't know what. Man, these and are great. I just kept. Who is this for? It reminds me also of uh, from Community. You know, there's like this weird through line of this little song that's supposed to be like cold music. Yes. Yes. And they end up singing throughout the yep. season. That's that was this. I get to see that Dean. Yeah. Sorry. I just uh, love that I keep showing up. Hey, bed. That's <laughs> not incorrect, and that actually turns the tide for that song. Wow. Now that's all I can kind of hear. <laughs> Uh, talk. All right, so we go from one clunker to, mm-hmm. admittedly, another clunker. Streetwalker, written by Robbie Robertson and uh, Rick Danko, sung by Danko. Uh, I like the groove of this song, but the song... I, I will say this about everything, so I don't repeat myself. I genuinely do enjoy the grooves of the band. I like what they're spitting out. I think that they're very talented musicians, and I think they do a good job. I think that it makes no sense. I think that's probably what we are not getting the most of is who the fuck listens to this. Like right. who like pops islands out as like, this is definitive band. No, nobody thinks that, but nobody is like, these are untalented people making everybody's talented, Yeah, but it doesn't make any sense why no. it's happening. This is a big why for me. So streetwalker love the groove, hate the song. Yeah. I think it's, um, kind of, it's piggybacking off of what you just said. It's emblematic of the whole album. Yeah. Cause like I couldn't figure out, the point of view of the song is like, are we condemning or condoning sex work? Or is this just making observations about somebody you saw? Uh, I, the musically, it sounds like half Randy Newman, half Saturday Night Live opening, which is in the worst way I can possibly put that on it. <laughs> so, yeah, because it's like, I mean, me. and the chorus is like, yeah, it's it's not easy. There's no pity in the city. Like, because it's in the second a... verse specifically, I actually looked at the lyrics this week because I was curious. Yeah. Because they seem to actually mean something more something. so than music for Big Pink Dead at all. Right. Um, and yeah, it was the second verse specifically sounds like it's coming from a place of her perspective that's like powerful, or maybe it was like one of the ones at the end. I don't know. I just didn't know what I don't. What is the fucking point of view of this song? What are we saying? I think that's why it's a clunker. <laughs> I don't have a good answer for it. Let the night fall, written by Robbie Robertson, vocals Manuel. 
Uh, this is, of course, famously, it's a song about owls. I thought it was about vampires. <laughs> There's just this owl that shows up constantly. And well, yeah, I mean, it is about an owl, but I thought it was about vampires. Uh, it probably could be. Uh, it's a nice, I think it's a nice organ. It's an easy song. It's very boring. Uh, I like Manuel's voice. It's a very just, ooh, that's a run-of-the-mill song. I said the same stuff. Kind yeah. of spacey Peter Frampton guitar was cool. The organ was cool, uh-huh. but just fucking boring. Yeah, it's I don't... Boring. I, I didn't really understand. Yeah, I think the lyrics are kind of uh, weak. Yeah. Because I don't mind songs that kind of don't make a lot of sense. I mean, while we were recording this episode, we were also doing On the Road Again by Bob Dylan, a song that makes no sense. But, but it's, it's fun. Yeah. And it, it's it's fun to just play with words. And I think Chess Fever and a lot of the mm-hmm. songs that don't we don't understand, we don't need to because it's fucking awesome. Uh, moving on to a song that uh, is also not fucking awesome is Ain't That a Lot of Love. <laughs> Uh, this was written by Homer Banks and Willa Dean Parker, so this is a cover. Oh. Uh, the vocals are by Levon Helm. And uh, I I don't even know what to say. Is that supposed to be Garth? Guitarth is getting them keys. Yeah, it must be Garth. <laughs> guitar, guitar, guitar Garth. Garth. Uh, it's just a weird, like, yucky, silly love song kind of thing. Um, the the line now that it's a cover okay this is no shade on the band but I can't think of a word that describes you but indescribable yes okay, I, all of them if the bees only knew how sweet you are darling they would shut up their honeycomb if the mm-hmm. birds could only see how voice your how sweet your voice is they pack up and fly away cliches this is mm-hmm. this is written by Bob Dylan in the 1980s just cliche this could have been on fucking Empire Burlesque for all we know Jesus Christ um, the this is the first one to have a little bit of flavor though the swamp stuff's like leaking in a little bit Garth is going crazy on uh, the keys during the guitar solo like that's what you're supposed to yeah, be hearing yeah, yeah, but yeah. it's really Garth's moment I think and the horns are not as offensive on this one and I think the cover they get away with it because it's just kind of an interpretation of a song and it sounds like that even though I don't know the original, like yeah, this is this is fine. Everything's fine. A song that I'm gonna be honest, I don't actually hate. I kind of like this song, but it makes absolutely no sense. This album was released. <laughs> well, we will get to this album was released on March fifteenth, nineteen seventy seven, and what a better time! What a better time to get your Christmas release in. Christmas must be tonight. I'm gonna go out and just say it. Beyond Papotti Rouge, I think that this is the best song on the album. And I think that the delivery by Danko is actually really deft i like when he sings son of a carpenter i just love like the whole the band like that's when i think yeah. that's a very great band moment because it's just letting danko go and them just like really like a wave just coming in underneath of him uh, and i love that i love the chorus son of a carpenter our mary carried the light this must be christmas must be tonight great yeah it's a, a great weird, christmas song <laughs> i like i mean it's it would be okay if it was a christmas song but this this song has a lot of potential yeah. and i i with the synthesized um, it, it could be a really cool song if it weren't about Christmas, but I guess just it being about Christmas isn't the word. It's just so out of fucking place. Yeah. Nobody does that. Puts a Christmas song in the middle of their album, although I think people should start. <laughs> I mean, right? Or just, everybody does the Christmas album, but right. th- that was not, a, 
I maybe it was a thing. I mean, maybe we'll look. Was, right? Maybe this year we'll look into the Christmas album as a thing. Like, yeah. when was the first album albums? You know, obviously like Bing Crosby and stuff are singing their right. stuff. So I guess it's probably back Good to the friend. days of the LP. Yeah. So I guess. I guess they know better, is what I'm saying. They know better. <laughs> but when do you release that? He's not like writing an album like Mr. Dylan is. So like, what are they supposed to do? They need to fulfill this contract, Kelly. <laughs> and they had to fill out the fucking album. So. It just so happened it was an okay song. I'll give yes. them that. Weird instrumental. Not a whole... Mm-hmm. Uh, there are more instrumentals as we go along, but uh, we haven't run across one yet. Uh, except for the very end. I think the French girls or whatever. You know, just the... Oh, yeah, yeah. Manuel playing. Or Garth playing. Um... Islands. This is uh, credited to Robbie Robertson, Hudson, and Danko all together. It also features Jim, Jim Gordon on the flutes, Tom Malone on the trombone, John Simon on the alto sax, and Larry Packer on the violin. So it's got all of our friends playing some crazy island music. Too much. The song is too long. Too it's, long. It's like a, a another one of those uh, Schoolhouse Rock, like 60s edutainment soundtrack thing to me. The flute is like a, a weird 60s folk vibe, but then the organ turns it into like a clown nightmare. Oh. Uh, <laughs> like a weird circusy thing. Um, and then you have the porny synths and, and the strings and the sax. Of fucking course, it's just all over the place. Yeah. I, I think they're going for that islandy vibe. I didn't get island at all. I hardly got island, mainly because I think about outside of the blockhouse. We had island music for a couple of weeks. We did. And it was just some dude hitting a steel drum. So much steel and, drum. and a marimba. I'd rather have this. I, if this was the <laughs> island music, give me some Garth. I, I don't know. It's like, it's really boring. Not going to go back to it. But I don't know if it's like offensive. The only song, I guess I haven't talked about this, but my introduction to the band was in 2000, their greatest hits from 2000, mm. which is probably one of the greatest, greatest hits, just hit after hit after hit after hit. And Papote Rooch is, is the only one from the greatest hits that made it onto that one disker um, from this late in their career. Nothing else even beyond that. This song is pretty cool. Yeah. I don't I don't think it's the best song of the album. I think Christmas is better than this. Hmm. I don't know why. But it's fun. This was written by Robbie Robinson and Danko sings it. Danko's getting a lot of a lot of singing on this record. You like this one though. I do. You, you yeah. guessed that this would have been on their greatest hits. I did, because it's the most catchy. Uh, it's the most like fun to sing along with. And also, I think it's about a space shaman, which is cool. She has a golden spaceship. Yeah. Um, she had a vision, and it, now it she just, holds the key. It felt like we were like we took a break with that crazy instrumental, yeah. and now we're like, oh, remember we used to do like blues rock? Yeah. Let's do that. Yeah. Remember when we were cool and we had yeah shifting choruses with like uh, different lyrics? Like we didn't just sing the same thing. Like a lot of these songs are very stilted and structured, and, and that old stuff is very like. Here's three verses in a chorus. Also, but, before I listened to the song, um, I, because apparently I have minor dyslexia from time to time, I was like, the saga of Pepote Rogue. Pepote Rogue. Pepote Rogue.
That sounds good. That sounds good. I think it's silly enough where you can read into it whatever you want. I think a line like, to be someone is to be someone alone. To be someone is known as solitude. To learn to sing below the surface, you must adjust your altitude. Yeah, the lyrics makes were like... Makes no sense, but like, it's very interesting. It could be super symbolic. No, and then you can just like, get high and think about like, oh, to sing below the surface... You must adjust your altitude. What? what? <laughs> and it's crazy. I mean, it's increasing. It's amazing. And I really, um, it's cool that they could do that kind of stuff still this late. <clears throat> and um, it's definitely a standout of this record. I mean, I, I can't lie, but um, I don't, I just don't find it that great. Cover of Georgia on my mind comes next. Um, we've all heard the Ray Charles version, probably the most famous. <laughs> this one's beautiful. I think Manuel knocks it out of the park. Oh, I think it's, it's great. so pretty. Um, this was written by Hoagie Carmichael and Stuart Gorell uh, years ago. And, of course, Manuel is playing the piano and singing, and it's wonderful. Everything's great except for the synth. The synth takes it to a place it doesn't need to be. There's nothing wrong with this song. It, his voice is beautiful. Yeah. I would just say it's unnecessary. Also, yeah. there's a weird, like, 007 break during the line. Um, other arms reach out when it kind of does that bridgey part. If somebody's like, dun, 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 dun. <laughs> what's happening? Thank so, just like, cool. I'm tired of this. <laughs> I was singing all these songs and now they said no more. I'm fucking bored. I should have been the one singing this one. But yeah, it's, it's beautiful. Just did it need to be there? I bet you could argue that about any song, honestly. But it needed to fulfill the contract. So it sure definitely did. had to be there. I mean, if we're scraping the barrel and we're doing a Christmas song, might as well fucking that's do a right, cover. That's right. Two more left. Knockin' Last John. This was uh, written by Robbie Robertson and the vocals by Robbie Robertson. So the unique Robbie showing up. This is our first Robbie joint. Um, and the connection between the guitar and the accordion is really interesting in this. What we, we still have not listened to at this point in our Sign on the Window career. Uh, we haven't listened to his 2009 album, Together Through Life. But every song on there is very heavy, um, sort of uh, bluesy accordion mm-hmm. type of music. We haven't listened to anything like that yet. But there are through lines between what they're doing with the guitar and the accordion here and what Bob Dylan is pulling, um, you know, 50 years later on Together Through Life. So I think I find it pretty, pretty interesting. And the lyrics are pretty interesting, too. It's like a song about the Great Depression. And mm-hmm. I think it relates directly to King Harvest, which we're going to talk about at the yes. end of uh, the band. Time for getting So my favorite three songs on this album were uh, Papote Rouge, Georgia on My Mind, which counts and doesn't Gosh, count, and uh, Knock and Lost John. Yeah, oh. I think the, the second half of the album, and I do like the next one too, so but uh, it gets it's, it's a plus and minus. So for Knock and Lost John, I um, I mean, it just I like when they're swampy. That's what they're supposed to do. And then yeah. the organ and the accordion play really well together. They do. Um, yeah, and even the weird rubber band synth is cool in this one. I didn't even hate that. Yeah, there's a lot of cool stuff going on. Yeah. There's a lot of... Yeah, that was a good that was a good song. And the final song on this album, which I think is also a pretty good one as well, "Living in a Dream," written by Robbie Robertson again. Vocals are Levon Helm. I enjoy the jauntiness of it, yeah. and I think Leon uh, Levon's singing is fantastic. It's a, an electric teeth song, as I always like to say. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Um, I also was looking at the lyrics, and I was like, you know, this could all be right as the threat. Like, I'm going to string red rubies around your throat. Yep. Uh, and then I was like, oh, it's about sex. The whole song's about... I get it. I <laughs> get it. i wake you softly from your sleep with a heart so warm and a love so deep. I can <gasps> imagine Bob Dylan. Crow. 
I'm gonna wake you up softly. Oh god. You sleep. Um, I mean, the song is a fun, like, funky CCR type song, and then it gets ruined with the saxophone. That's why it gets a plus and a minus for me. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't know why wow. they do that. I don't know if you'll ever win with this thing. And you know we're all in No, that's not true because in the next level we'll talk about. Yeah, that's fine. true. They do rock some tuba and stuff too, and it's really it's great. It's really effective. All right, Kelly. So that is Islands, nineteen seventy seven, final record uh, produced by the band. What are your final thoughts on it? I'm more interested in you. I, this is something personally I don't go to ever. But Pony Rouge is probably the only one. I think listening to it again. I'm going to rock a couple of these and save a little bit well, must more. be Christmas is going on our Christmas playlist. Definitely going on a Christmas playlist. It has to. I've already put it on there, so don't even worry. But like Knockin' Last John is one that I just like, I, I legitimately do forget about. And I think I'm going to kind of like probably put them in a rotation more. But for you, you know, this is the third thing, if you will, that you've listened to. Where, where is it going? What, what are we um, this album as a whole is News Fest, which I mean, we kind of talk about. I think that's its biggest sin is that it's just boring, boring. as fuck. It's soft and gentle at the old contemporary. Mm-hmm. And it like veers into blues rock for a second before sax soloing its way on out. Thanks, Garth. I, I, I mean, we already talked about, but I really don't know who the target demographic is. I mean, it's definitely not me, or I would venture to say lesbians under 40. Um, <laughs> I'm just going to throw that out there. Um, I like the boldness of putting a Christmas song in the middle, although it was really upsetting and the instrumental track is just like <laughs> upsetting in the sense of like i didn't I like the, the boldness <laughs> it is i think so um, I suppose. everything and i did this the latter half of the album is is good um well especially comparatively mm. but yeah, yeah the sax and synth combo is done in a way that every time the sax comes in it's offensive and we know we've we've talked especially during our 80s mm-hmm. basically what ended up being 80s month that was music video month uh we bemoaned the overuse of sense and how it True. just instantly ages a song in the most negative way. Um, this and does it, do that, for sure. Yeah, for sure. And the the sax is is super offensive, and it, I wouldn't feel so jarring. And I don't have anything against the saxophone. I honestly fucking don't. It, it, just hearing the intelligence, the way it's used on the the album, the band mm-hmm. versus this, it's just a very stark contrast, and it's not very good. So yeah, I would I would not listen to this again. And if Cody Rouge came on, I would sing along. That's better. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And that's how I feel as well. And we'll listen to the Christmas song again on our Christmas playlist. So stay tuned for that. Yeah. But that was a great segue into our next album. So this is the, the band's second album titled The Band, also known as The Brown Album. Gross. But it's a pretty iconic uh, album cover. And The Brown is also pretty bold, I think. And also I think it works well for what they were trying to go through with, with the what they were trying to go for with the lyrical content with the song content, I think it all kind of fits. So this album was released in September of 1969, so right at the end of the 60s. It was recorded in the Hollywood Hills at the same house that Judy Garland and Sammy Davis Jr. had once owned. Um, he was trying to go for a basement vibe, just sort of like living communally in a house and playing it. They tried to record it in New York, but it wasn't really working. Rolling Stone called this the 45th best album of all time and the greatest albums of all time list. Time Magazine in 2006, uh, it was unranked, but they included it among the 100 album, greatest albums of all time. This was released four days after Abbey Road. And so it was impossible for you know critics not to talk Compare about them. the two. Yeah. And 
sometimes in favor of the band over the Beatles, which is insane. This is in the book 1001 Albums to Hear Before You Die. In 2009, it was preserved in the National Recording Registry as, quote, historically, culturally, or aesthetically important and informs or reflects life in the United States. I guess that's probably just what it needs to be in the National Recording Registry. Right. I don't know what they said about it. Uh, and then what you're thinking of, remember when we were trying to find the VH1 making of? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I, I found a little bit more on this. And it, it, they did one for Big Pink and for the band. So it was VH1 that, okay. that did it in 1997. It was gotcha. when it was um, commissioned, if you will. But where that exists now, in a vault somewhere in New York. So... We will get there. So, Kelly, before we get into it, just a quick purview. How did you feel about listening to this, uh, especially after music from Big Pink? This is one year later. I think the biggest difference um, is intentionality. The, the songwriting was purposeful. I feel like before the emphasis was totally on music and like what we could do and just experimenting and um, the lyrics were not necessarily important. Um, right. Not to say that the, like, I don't know, the, even the weight was really kind of nonsensical. Oh, yeah. So, um, but this definitely, they had songwriting in mind, if that makes sense. Not that they weren't making songs and music for Big Pink, but it seemed like they were really like, let's think about what we're saying. What do we want to say? Let's make a neat package. Let's make everything fit together. Yeah. Instead of just like, okay, you do some crazy shit over there, and then I'm going to talk about a cow, and then we're going to go here. Like, like, Garth, get out the telegraph key. Let's go. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But there's still, there's still playfulness and still um, experimentation on this, but it's just a lot, it's hemmed in in a good way. Yeah. I think that's what makes it so strong. Yeah. And I think it is what makes it definitely one of my favorite albums of all time, straight front to back. So let's start front to back. Let's just go down the list and then we'll talk about it in general at the end. Standing by your window in pain pistol in your hand And I beg you, dear Molly girl Try and understand your man Track number one, Across the Great Divide, written by Robbie Robertson, vocals, of course, by Richard Manuel. Thinking about this song is pretty interesting because uh, music critic Barry Hopkins thinks of this song, and a lot of people do, as a concept album about the American South and about songs across time and space. <laughs> uh, Graham Marcus agrees. He says, quote, uh, it's across, uh, across the great divide between men and women, between the past and the present, between the country and the city, between the North and the South. And in the liner notes, um, Rob Bowman writes in the 2000 reissue of this album uh, that the songs reflect, quote, people, places, and traditions associated with an older version of Americana. This song is interesting. It's an interesting first song. You know, Tears of Rage was our first one for music from Big Pink. It kind of set the tone. And I think this one does as well. You know, this divide. If the divide is the 1960s, which is very present in the writing of this album, but it's also almost the 1860s as well. It's the divide between the North and the South. And I think a lot of these songs deal with the South, I mean, the antebellum before the war, uh, after the war, the effects of the war. But what wars are we talking about? Are we talking about that war or are we talking about Vietnam? You know. Mm. So I think that sort of bleeds into our understanding of this record. And I think Across the Great Divide is a really nice song. I think it's a very sort of weirdly jaunty song for, I don't know, it kind of sets the tone. Yeah, I. That's this is like a great intro to what they're going to do in the album as far as bringing in so many instruments. The horns on this are great. It kind of gave me a little bit of a Beatles, Beatlesy vibe. Yeah. Um, which is, it makes sense. Like as contemporary to this happening. Um, but yeah, it's, it's so, so weird 
and, and good. Like I wasn't expecting it to happen. I don't know. It did oh. set, set a tone really well just because like the the horns make it goofy in a way almost. So Yeah, exactly. It, it makes everything a little more theatrical, which yeah. I like. I don't know. It kept that irreverence in there for me. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. Yeah, I, I always like saw the one horse town as like the seven curses expanded universe. You know, like <laughs> this could very well exist yeah. on your... Weirdly enough, I feel like it could even fit on your Wild West playlist. It's like mm. a strange... Because, again, the irreverence is there, and you can almost see them playing this at, like, a dive bar sort of thing. Because I think the lyrical content sort of do it. And this song was typically played after the night they drove old Dixie down to sort of hammer home the connection between Dixie and this. So I think that that is pretty intentional. And I think knowing that makes this song make more sense in that vein. But I I genuinely love this song. I love singing along to it. And... It might be. I mean, it's it's very weighty, and the, I think the lyrics are pretty weighty. But also, it's just fun to like just not think about it as a socio political song, and more of just like a a personal song. That didn't come across to me at all. It just to me, yeah, it felt like a personal. Yeah, you're cheating and, on your your Molly. Yeah, she's gonna shoot you. She's gonna shoot you. <laughs> See you later. Yeah. So I I think starting off really strong. Track two, we move on to rag. Mama, oh my god, rag. the tuba in this song. Fucking incredible. Yeah, this song is a, is a hit. This is uh, Robbie Robertson writing it. Levon, of course, on the uh, on the vocals. Um, they recorded this in a pretty straightforward way. They started it, but Robbie Robertson thought that it did not sound right. So Levon Helm moved to the mandolin. Richard Manuel playing the drums. Danko played the fiddle. And producer John Simon, who plays with them all the way up to Islands, uh, was playing the tuba. And uh, Garth Hudson was playing an upright acoustic piano in the ragtime fashion, which is wild. This was number 16 uh, as a single in the UK. It reached number 16 and number 57 in the US on the top 100, which is wild to think of this being like on the Billboard charts. Hmm. Uh, Matt Kemp and Rolling Stone called this a rural dance tune. um, And it's been associated with uh, straight out of turn of the century New Orleans. And I love the tuba and I love just like... The violin yeah, it does or whatever like a second is going line on. Vibe to it. It's talking about New Orleans, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a really fun and funky song. It's like it's more importantly on my list of the top four songs on this. Oh, album. good. Well, no, that's what it's all known for. Yeah, there's just a lot of shit going on. I love the cacophony of like just the jam sound of it, and it's really it's kind of in your face. Her beautiful and I think lyrically it reminded me a lot of Bob Dylan especially the song we were doing um, this one on the road again just because it's kind of all over the place yeah which yeah I guess we can't Bob definitely infects the way that we think about this and that's kind of the point but yeah it's sort of this crazy dynamic between and I I love the interplay between all of them like this is a great high moment of the band like how do they put all that noise in and make it sound good? Mm-hmm. Whereas, like, Islands, the song, is a great moment of the band all together playing, but it doesn't sound good. Right. It doesn't matter. It's so minor as to be um, non-existent almost, whereas Rag Mama Rag is just fantastic. Because it's almost like, who cares what the lyrics are? You're just fucking, like, bouncing around. I think Levon's vocals are incredible. Definitely a Levon song, yeah. for sure. So now we move on to the meat, the big one, <laughs> the big song. So this is... This is uh, this is a weird one because, as we've talked about before in uh, Sound of the Window podcasts, um, 
Red Robin has not sponsored this podcast yet, famously. <laughs> We've been trying to get them for a long time by frequenting their restaurant. However, every time we go in, Colby Calais is definitely giving us the theme song of Red Robin. And that's, and that's really nice. It's welcoming. It's warm. But that one time we were sitting there, and after Colby Kelly was done playing, we're like, okay, cool. It's now time to eat. We've prayed to our Lord and Savior. This song comes on, The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down. And I just remember sitting there amongst everybody. I'm like, what the fuck is this song This is doing inappropriate. playing at Red Robin at 5.30 in the afternoon? What is happening? Hmm. This song is bizarre. And, and I think that's like our connection to this song. Before you had heard it for the first time? You never heard this song before. No, not that I know of. Okay. So, yeah, beyond that, it's just very bizarre. And I'm sure after listening to it, it's probably more bizarre, too. Like, yes. Can you imagine this just playing? However, this song is highly regarded by people. And I, it's a, it's a troubling song. So this song is ranked number 245 of all time by Rolling Stone. Pitchfork named it the 42nd best of the 1960s. Uh, this is part of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame's 500 songs that influence rock and roll. All of that makes sense. Complete sense. The official story of this is essentially a first-person narrative about... Virgil Kane is a name and I served on the Danville train Till Stormer's cavalry came and tore up the tracks again In the winter of 65 we were hungry just back served on the Danville train. Danville, of course, is in Virginia. Uh, Till Stoneman's cavalry came and tore up the tracks again. So the end of the war was essentially tearing up the railroad tracks leading into Richmond and f- forcing the you know, the defeat of the South, essentially. The leaving, the going to Appomattox Courthouse. So this is the end of the Civil War. This is where we are in time. But we're, we're talking about the economic and social distress you know, brought on by our protagonist, Virgil. He's having a hard time. Poor southern white farmer during the Civil War. And you've got Stoneman coming and, and raiding and all of that. So that's where we are. In his memoir, Levon Helms notes, quote, Robbie and I worked on the night they drove Old Dixie down up in Woodstock. I remember taking him to the library so he could research the history and geography of the era and make General Robert E. Lee come out with all due respect. In the original review, Ralph Gleason of the Rolling Stone, of the Rolling Stone, of Rolling Stone, explained, quote, Nothing that I have read has brought home the overwhelming human sense of history that this song does. The only thing I can relate it to at all is The Red Badge of Courage, which was a book written by Stephen Crane in the 1800s. Uh, it's a remarkable song. The rhythmic structure, the voice of Levon and the bass line with the drums make it seem impossible that this isn't some traditional material handed down from father to son straight out of that winter of 1865 to today. It has a ring of truth and the whole aura of authenticity. This song has been adopted by lost causers in the South. I would imagine. And uh, the economic anxieties, quote, unfucking quote, uh, which this song is about, is not untrue. You know, poor white farmer in 1865 was certainly experiencing that economic anxiety. But this song has that dark undertone. And I think it's what makes it a complex song because it is, I'm sure Robbie Robertson's not stoked that it's like, people read this as a I mean you could see a white supremacist oh, yeah. playing this and it would be totally fine I don't know if that's what they were going for they certainly weren't going for it but it's that telling of, of history that makes it strange and I have a hard time with this song too and the only way that I can sort of justify it is that I see it as 
looking at a lens of Virgil Cain, whoever this character is, and these are his motivations that you've researched and studied, and you're writing a song from their point of view, perhaps there's something to be learned by the way that they justify their actions and the way that they um, sort of manipulate their understanding of the moment and what they say about it. And in that, you can sort of understand where they're coming from. It doesn't make them right. But of course, anybody who believes in the lost cause is losing brain cells and cannot put two and two together. So that's my generous reading of it. Yeah, I think the... Um, because, yeah, it's especially when you hear that comment about him being like, you know, with all due for Robert E. Lee. Yeah. So it's... And Levon was fr- the only one from the South, you know? And so, again, it's like getting it right is one thing. To write a propaganda song that makes no sense and doesn't... Like, if there was a Virgil Cain out there, it, this song would probably be more true to his life than writing a propaganda piece of, like somebody standing up against it. I think more often, most people are just nudged along in history. It really mm. takes the rare person to stand outside of it. And I think we see ourselves always as the one standing outside of it, but in truth, we're all sort of being crushed by a wave. And um, and I think Virgil Cain is a classic character being crushed by the wave that he doesn't fully understand. Well, that's why the, the last... I mean, it's definitely supposed to give you empathy and a, a sense of perspective that maybe you wouldn't consider. And the last verse of it is important for them because, like, you know, the Yankee put him in his grave. Like, of course, this is breeding hatred and contempt. Like, this is why the people, some people in the South are still the way they are is because they had this chip on their shoulder, this slight that happened 100 years ago. But for Virgil, it was just... see this as an anti-war song and in a way it is you know but then again it's really hard it's hard to conceptualize something like the civil war and especially world war ii as as an anti-war movement existing for those confrontations because what you're saying you're you're up against nazis and it is an anti-war song it's saying think of these people let's not go in and, and you know do what stoneman did what what um um, Sherman did, you know, driving from Atlanta to the sea, you know, burning and pillaging and, you know, but then again, like, if you didn't do that, the slavery, man, the South would still be riding hot. Like, I don't, it's really hard. And that's what makes the song really complex. And I really like it because it is that level of empathy. But then at the very end, it's the acknowledgement that like, these ideas are dead, just like you, my friend. Yeah. Goodbye. And good riddance. Well, and, the line where he's like, you can't raise a cane when he's in defeat. That's great. I that's mean, nice does that, is that supposed to mean like you can't bring this ideology back, or like because I don't know, it was I don't know. No, but and also Cain, I think is playing with the idea of Cain and Abel from the Bible, and mm. and I think that juxtaposition, yeah. But I think that for somebody who's deep in the lost cause, they don't see it that way, and I think they see it as like a challenge instead of a true statement. Yeah. Well, musically, you can all agree that it's fucking beautiful. It's fucking. And yeah, beautiful. that drum beats, that drum roll going into them all harmonizing is just it makes your hair stand on it. It does. It's beautiful. And there's also like a little hidden gem at the very end. I didn't notice until like one of the last times listening to it. There's a bugle, like a distant bugle, um, at the very end, which would like sing like to me is a very taps yeah. kind of thing, and that was really cool. Just yeah. Just to kind of say, hey, yeah, we, they're dead. Everyone's dead. It's amazing. Levon Helm uh, never performed this song after the last waltz. Oh. He refused to play it, not because he was so upset about 
the song content or Robbie Robertson getting all the credit for it. He was, according to Garth Hudson, incredibly upset by Joan Baez's version that he never <laughs> wanted to touch it again. I did not listen to that. Yeah, I did not either. And I don't know if I ever have, but now I'm really curious to listen to it because if that made Levon so mad that he took one of the best, I mean, one of the classic band songs and was like, I'm never touching it again. That's amazing. Because of Joan. Why did it make him mad? I don't know. Did he like it better? And he was like, he just disliked it. He just did not like that song. So. All right, so moving on from that, and I'm sure there's a lot more to it that I'm actually really curious about, but let's move on to kind of a pretty song, and a song that some people don't like, but I kind of love. When You Awake, written by Robbie Robertson and Richard Manuel, and sung by Rick Danko. And I think people are, don't really like Danko singing this, but I think it only works with him. Um, and it's Manuel playing the drums. People cite his drums as being like out of, out of time, mm. like he's not really that greatest of drummer but he plays a lot of drums on this so Manuel's playing drums Robertson on guitar uh, and then Manuel and Hudson both play organ and um, he's playing the drums to a ragtime sound so So is someone playing bongos specifically? I don't know okay I mean it's another like because it is like yeah it does sound like something like that it's like circusy and jammy I thought this was kind of Beatles-y too yeah um it, I really love the mix of this song. I felt like you could hear the guitars really well. It sounded really bright and clear. Yeah. It, it felt more so than the other tracks on the album, like a capturing a live moment. Um, I don't know. It felt really, really crisp. I don't know. Like yeah. Plot. But uh, what's the, there's a weird fade out in this one. Is that the one where he's like saying a line at the end? Yeah, there as is. As it ends. And, uh, and apparently they did this song live. Uh, he does that fade too. He just steps away from the microphone. What as the song fades out, I don't know. It's so weird. <laughs> um, yeah, I love this. Uh, I brought up uh, Peter Viney last week, the band historian. He describes it, quote, as a strange song in that it breaks up the full blast Americana of the three preceding tracks uh, and the following one. Listening to it again, it hardly sounds like any kind of rock song at all. Like all their best tracks, you, you grab images as you re-listen, but you're hard put to connect these images together. And... A lot of people see it as like a, an old timer talking to his grandson type of thing. When you awake, you will remember everything. You'll be hanging on your string. Mm-hmm. When you believe, you will relieve your only soul. That you've been born with to grow old and never know. <laughs> yeah, I just love that. I love singing this song out loud. It's very pretty. It's just like I can imagine a grandpa sort of like telling their kid this. I like that. I like that version of the song. Yeah. Now let's get to the heart of it, baby. One of the first <laughs> songs that I like truly fell in love with with the band, Beyond the Wade is up on Cripple Creek. She tore it up and threw it in my face just for a laugh. Now there's one thing in the whole wide world I sure would like to see. That's when that little love of mine dips a donut in my teeth. Up on Cripple Creek she sends me if I spring a leap she Uh, this was, I think, their most successful song, if I'm not wrong. Maybe there's something later on, but number 25 on the Billboard Top 100. They actually performed this on Ed Sullivan, Ed Sullivan Live <laughs> in 1969, November of 69, which is, I didn't even, 
I can't even see them on that show. But this was written by Robbie Robertson, and the vocals are, of course, Levon Helm. I love this song. It's I love great. this song so fucking much. I just put, I'm here to funk you up. Yeah. <laughs> and we had, ah, when she dips her donut in my tea. Uh-huh. Mm, that's pretty great. That's pretty great. I, I really love... So what's the song about? I, I mean, it's about a side chick, I believe. Okay. Because he's got to go back to old Bessie, but or Big Mama or Big Mama, right? Yeah. But he I'm like, I'm like, so apparently Big Mama that. was also what they sort of call C, like CB radio and trucking. Okay. So there may not actually be a cheating situation. Big Mama might just be I got to get back on the road. Oh, so because okay. yeah, I was kind of confused too. I always thought it was. I, I like to imagine it as Big Mama and like you're like this girl, this Bessie girl is like right. a hard drinker, does all the same stuff as you, mm-hmm. hangs with you, and obviously that's endearing and tempting to be with somebody like that, and it's. But then also shitty because you're cheating on. Sure, but if there is no big mama, what's up? Yeah, if it's just you being bummed you have to go back on the road because you love Bessie, then that's cool. I love the everybody howling together. Yes. It's so great. And there's also those... Yes. Like, it's infectiously fun is all it is. Mm -hmm. And the chorus is incredible. Uh, Just for the music heads out there, Up on Cripple Creek is notable because it's one of the first instances of Garth, international treasure, Garth Hudson. Playing the Horner clavinet. Is that what that clavinet? The horn, the Horner clavinet, uh, playing through a wah wah pedal. Okay, so I was that's like, "What the, the fuck is that sound?" I figured it was a guitar. Like Frampton kind of sounds a little mm-hmm. bit like that. Sure. Okay, that's yeah. I was like, so what? the clavinet through a wah wah, and that riff is heard after uh, each watch of the song. It's so cool. It is amazing, and the sound became famous. Yeah, for the funk music. Yep. For in the 1970s and people do point to this song as one of those moments which is fucking crazy Robbie Robertson said quote we're not dealing with people at the top of the ladder we're saying what about the house out there in the middle of that field what does this guy think with one light on downstairs and that truck parked out there that's who I'm curious about what is going on there and just following the story of this person as he drives these trucks across the whole country and he knows these characters that he drops in on his travels just following him with a camera is really what this song is all about okay well that. Makes total sense. Truck driving. Yeah, absolutely. Even just somebody who just travels. Anybody who's ever taken a road trip or met the weirdos out there in the country, it's it's a very fun song because you might not have met a Bessie, but you've met people like Bessie, or you've Mm -hmm. certainly heard of people like Bessie. And I think that's what makes this song sort of timeless. And I I I think that the funkiness is never going to go away. It doesn't sound dated in a way that some of the funk that comes after maybe does a little bit. This song sounds fresh. I yeah. still think it's amazing. It's cool that that sound is so cool, yeah. and it's great that I mean I immediately identified it as like a funk sound. And I didn't realize that this was one of the yeah precursors. If that's you will. crazy, wild. So we shift focus now from the fun. We now go to a song that universally beloved, but is getting an eye roll over here. Whisper in Pines, really? written by Robbie Robertson and Manuel. Vocals are Manuel and Levon Helm. Manuel is playing piano in this one. I think it's a beautiful song. I think it's a song that slows it down almost to a crushing stop. Mm -hmm. So I will say I don't know about it on the album. Like it almost feels like uh, King Harvest should almost like keep the ball rolling as we slowly fade out. Uh, I've always found King Harvest to be a a strange album closer, even though I think thematically it makes the most sense. But I think the song is incredibly affecting and Manuel is god it's amazing but it was like he just can't help himself he really wants to write that slow ballad that mm-hmm. pop hit it's, man it's beautiful and there's nothing it's it's a really cool organ like there's a shimmer kind of sound that happens that i like and they were it feels like one of the i'm doing a cutting edge thing musically yeah well know. according to the band manager joe forno 
uh, Manuel wrote the melody on a piano that was one key out of tune, and he oh. kept the out of tune key uh, throughout the entire song, so everyone's playing playing a little bit off. Weird. Which is it comes out really well. I mean, it's beautiful. It's just like slow and. That made me sad. It, it is a very sad <laughs> song. Um, yeah, the music critic that I mentioned before, Barney Hoskins, he, he called this, he called especially the call and response at the very end with their singing. Wow. Uh, and I think when you sort of elevate it to that, it does become a very seminal song. I don't know if I hear that when I first listen to it. It just kind of sounds like a ballad. But I'm also not the type that really gets affected by ballads. I typically want to move on yeah. from the ballads. But I think if you spend some time in it, and I tried to this week, like listening to them do this, because they're really good at ballads. And uh, I don't know if it's going to be the number one hit you know, that Manuel wants it to be. But I think it's, again, this is a song that if anybody else sort of wrote, this is kind of a pinnacle is the highlight i think it's a beautiful song see for me this is another instance like i was feeling last week with the other like kind of slower songs on music from big pink or maybe even the later ones i don't remember yeah. uh where i was like this is a motown song and oh, yeah. it was like a soul song instead for some reason like not that they can't do it and you gotta give it to the band because they're pulling shit from everywhere true like there's nothing sacred every musical genre is on the table for us to fuck with we can do whatever we want which is we'll very create cool. it if we don't have it yeah yeah, which is wild. So there's nothing wrong with it. It bumps me out. Um, but it's, yeah, it's beautiful. And if you were, if this could go on my playlist, my sad music for a good times playlist, because when you want to be sad, sometimes you just want to be sad. It's true. And there is a, like a little bit of a light at the end. I mean, it's not all sad, you know, you see people out there in the distance. It's like, we're still here. It's not a, it's not a, what's it called situation. Oh, that's what the name of that song was. There's a song in A League of Their Own at the end. This used to be my playground. Or maybe it's at the very beginning. It reminds me of that for some reason. It's not similar at all. But wow. Okay. It used to be my playground. It's just like sad. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe they wrote it. Who knows? Who all knows? Right. Moving on to maybe. Uh, you think of uh, Night They Drove Old Dixie Down as one of the sort of more um, questionable takes. <laughs> This one, this one is definitely probably the, the biggest one. Yeah. Uh, Jemima Surrender, uh, written by Robbie Robertson, Levon Helm, vocals by Levon Helm. Uh, in general, um, Helm plays guitar on this one. Manuel Helmed. Yeah, nice, nice. Uh, he played the drums, uh, described as, quote, gloriously off kilter. Garth was playing piano in this one, uh, and he also plays uh, the baritone saxophone, and John Simon rocks that tuba again. Nice. Musically, it's a rock. It's a rocker. It's a rocker. It's a rocker yeah, song. I mean, it's like this is what roots rock is, right? Yeah, <laughs> like, totally. This is very Leonard Skinner, but that would come, you know, a couple years later. Later, so. exactly. And so this one and uh, Rocking Chair kind of get the mm-hmm. sort of uh, the bill for the roots rock sort of thing. There's a lot of sex stuff in here. I'm, I'll bring over my Fender and I'll play all night for you, mm-hmm. and then you get fucking Robbie like just like on it, and then of course you can change your name.
<laughs> uh, yeah, and it's like I think it's even darker if you take the entire concept of you know antebellum songs before the Civil War, mm. even though we're sort of spreading through time and stuff. Um, this gets dark in that sense where it's somebody who's saying things like this and it's not wrong. Like you can fight all you want, but yeah, this is what's happening. So, especially the use of the the, the name Jemima, which I feel like would be more of a southern like black name. Well, yeah, I mean, of course you've got name. Aunt Jemima's um, pancake right, syrup and stuff right, like right. that. And I think that's where it's very pointedly that, and right. I'm sure the band is aware. They're definitely aware of that. Well, maybe it's about pancakes. <laughs> Maybe you just really you can jump and shout, but I'm bound to win. Yeah, <laughs> I'm gonna eat uh, all the pancakes. So this song inspired Naomi Weistein to form the Chicago Women's Liberation Rock Band that played from 1969 to 1973. Uh, that sought to challenge the genre of rock music by installing women's voices and feminist type lyrics into the musical canon. This is 1969. Well, Papa, don't lay those sounds on me. I ain't your groovy chick. No, Papa, don't lay those sounds on. Don't you know they make me sick? Well, rolling stones, blood, sweat, and tears. I've taken that shit for too many years. Papa, don't leave those sounds on me. I ain't your groovy chick. Well, Papa, I ain't your friend no more, and I ain't gonna make your bed. Well, Papa, I ain't your friend no more. Well, you better get a dog instead. Well, Backstreet Girl, under my thumb, start looking out where you're coming from. Papa, I ain't your friend no lyrics Jemima surrender I'm gonna give it to you she said she this made her feel quote how criminal to make the subjugation and suffering of women so sexy we'll organize our own rock band yeah uh so that only existed till 73 but she was quote tired of hearing pop songs glorify the subjugation and degradation of women and wanted to reach out to young women and at the same time educate about the importance of feminist culture well that's badass crazy so this one song the band can influence Fucking George Harrison's and Clapton quits all fucking music. And then you got people being like, Jemima, surrender. Fuck you, I'm not surrendering. Yeah. Well, I mean, I like to take it from the perspective of, like, a character as opposed to, like, this is the band and this is how I feel about women. (laughs) Sure. Yeah, no, totally. Absolutely. And that's why I think the song is is subversive in that sense. However you want to read it. I read it like that. It's very dark. And and I think it's dark with the bouncy. Like, Mm -hmm. that's the best kind of music where it's like, they're almost glorifying it, but it's such a horrific thing to glorify that... Yeah. You can't help but be drawn to it. But then the Fender stuff makes it weird because it's also incorporating modern words in something right. that is... In, if you want to read it like that, that doesn't make sense. What's a Fender? It's a guitar, obviously, from the 1900s. So. Plus there's a little fun line where it's like, he won't talk, he's in shock, which kind of reminded me of the Milk of Cow thing. Yeah, totally, totally. All right, <sighs> next next track, Rock and Chair. I think probably the most straightforward song on this record. Singing about old Virginie. Ragtime Willie. Best friend. It's very cute. It's very cute. Uh, I hope we get to see Ragtime Willie when we talk about bills later on. Don't worry about it. I was dreaming about bills. Um, No bills. Just talk about bills. Um, Is there a melodica in this song? Do you know? I don't know. This one is uh, not a whole lot of info on it. So the melodica or the pianet, I think it's called, is the little tiny piano you blow into. Okay. I wouldn't be shocked Um, if International Treasure Growth Hudson was playing that. Yeah. Why the fuck not? I'm sure they had one laying around. Um, And there's also like a really. Italian, Italian mm. guy. What am I, my mother? Italian. Uh, Italian. Um, it's a really weird Italian guitar, like that really super fast strumming uh-huh. that sounds very much like it could be in a Sinatra song. Yeah. Um, yeah, with like a southern rock twist to it. I don't know. It's it's really interesting, and I like that it, it's just it's like a sweet little song. Yeah. About, about Willie. 
It is it is a good song. Um, so I did just a fun fact while I'm thinking about this song. Uh, when I was looking up the band discography just to see the track listing, mm-hmm. Islands, only one song on Islands, I think, has its own entry for the song, and it's probably Pavode Rouge. Rouge. Yeah. Uh, and then this song, every or this album, every single song except for Rock and Chair yeah. and Jawbone has yeah. its own entry, which is wild. Yeah, especially because Jawbone's my favorite song. On Jawbone's great, but like the fact that this album obviously is yes. important is very important. Absolutely, yeah. but that song I think is it's fine. Rock and Chair, this one, yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, there's not, not it a whole works. lot of need. It's just sweet. It's like it's, come it's, on, it's, take a little time. Let's go, ragtime, Willie. <laughs> yeah, I'm old Virginia. Let's hello, Virginia. Whatever. Uh, look out, Cleveland. Uh, Robbie Robinson wrote it. I think Daco kills it on the vocals. Hudson on the organ. Manuel on the piano. And uh, Robbie on the electric guitar. It's a straightforward band. Uh, I think it's great. And it's not Cleveland, Ohio. Cleveland, Texas. Oh, interesting. Because uh, the next line is talking about Houston. Houston. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I was like, this is the track that Garth built. Um, <laughs> there's like a bop along bass going on in the, the piano and the organ are really cool. Um, yeah, it is really cool. It's fun and jaunty, but is this song about weather? Is there more? I don't know. Is it just about a storm? Because I don't it, know. People uh, cite the influence of like urban blues on this instead of like rural music. Like it's mm-hmm. the first, like the rest of this is very like rural type, you know, yeah. rural dance numbers and stuff. So this is a very like, yeah, and you can tell it's Not like very upbeat and like kind of rolling. So I don't know if there's more to it uh, unless the unless if you're talking about, you know, Thunder on the Hill and, and weather as being like social stuff, you mm. know, sort of like coming, blowing in through a town. And also, I think people often use a storm as coming as a euphemism for some kind of social change. Yeah. So revolution or or the not wanting a revolution type of thing. Mm. So it's either good or it's bad. And I think that's more on you. But yeah, I like Look Out Cleveland. I think it's a great song. I think that the best song on this album and probably my favorite, my favorite band song period which i will come to regret next week saying that sentence <laughs> is jawbone i don't know why it's jawbone so cool. is my favorite but that piano lick is my favorite piano lick outside of sign on the window the name of our podcast nice. um i just think it's so incredible i'm a thief So, like this, that's what this song is nuts yeah. because the the verses are like I don't know, again reminding me of a Beatles song. I couldn't place it. I could like hear. It. I don't know the Beatles catalog that well. No, but that's actually really good because it like slows it down almost mm-hmm. like their last couple records. Oh, jawbone, why can't you sit and moan? And, well, and even that wind up, that weird mm-hmm. effect they do in the voice. Oh, mm-hmm. It's like that's so weird and spooky. I love it. Yeah. But yeah, the the chorus is straight up like Al Green, good ass soul music, yeah. and it sounds it's so their voices so are perfect. Good. Yeah, it's so good. I don't really know what it's about, like a loser thief, you know, the temptations mm-hmm. of crime. I just love. I'm a thief and I dig it. Yeah, that line. I'm on a beef. It, I'm gonna rig it. I'm a thief and I dig it. What mm-hmm. the fuck? I'm a thief and I dig it. I love it so much. <laughs> it's really good. Temptation stands behind the door. So what you gonna go and open it for? I think that this is just one of the best. I think it's the most underrated. I'll say that the most underrated band song. Well, I could I could understand why people might not like it because it does feel like two songs mashed together. Love it because they are pretty disparate. But it it works. I'm just always waiting for the chorus to come back. Me too. Like I wish the whole song was that. Me too. 
And I think with I love the thief and I dig it, but maybe they could have put a little more meat on the bones because that would have been an essential song. I think that that chorus alone is like the greatest chorus ever on this record. I love it a lot. We move from the jauntiness of Jawbone <laughs> to the Unfaithful Shervin, which again is another high point for a lot of people. Hmm. Uh, Robbie Robertson, of course, wrote it. Rick Danko doing the heavy lifting here. Uh, fun fact: Elvis Costello's favorite song. Uh, Robertson's playing acoustic guitar, and that strumming at the end when he's doing his like solo. You're still one and the same, just you and me. Like that like little Italian sound too that's mm. in the other track yeah. yeah totally yeah so that strumming by Robbie Robertson at the end and the picking at the end is amazing uh, Levon on the drums and Manuel on piano Garth plays the soprano saxophone and John Simon who's apparently just hanging out in the studio with a tuba that guy is just throwing tuba sounds all over the place how do you feel about the song? I, apparently something in the lyrics struck me as being kind of melodramatic like it just mm. I guess the the feeling that it's trying to convey didn't come across to me. It didn't seem as earnest as like the night they drove old Dixie down. It didn't. It felt like it was trying to make me feel something. Does that make sense? Like it's trying to force a sadness as opposed to like I'm writing a song because I'm feeling away. Yeah, I mean when you explicitly say like the memories will linger on, but the good old days are all gone. It's like yeah. you can show that instead of telling it. Right. Yeah. You're just like playing on nostalgia a little bit. Um, yeah. <laughs> there is a line though where he says. Something sorry and then something glorious. Like, only a fucking Canadian could rhyme the words sorry and glory. That's true. <laughs> sorry, sorry, glory. glory. <laughs> uh, Peter Aaron says the song has an odd descending chord progression that's more like jazz than mm. anything in the band's uh, stuff to this point. Uh, producer um, John Simon uh, was talking about the moaning sound of the tuba. Mm. And a lot of people cite that as something like that really works. And I think it works well on this song, especially after the strumming. Then you just get this moaning from the yeah. tuba um they said that that was not on purpose uh, rather it was the only sounds that he and hudson were able to make on the instruments so they just they <laughs> couldn't go anywhere else so that's just the way it was we're and, playing this note and only this note and robbie roberts had said quote to write a song about this kind of thing is not really a very righteous thing to do because we're at the point now where there should be no differences between people everybody is now so interested in being the same so i was kind of playing a game and writing this song. And I think there's a darkness too of that. The unfaithful servant, the runaway slave, mm-hmm. the person who wants to be free. You're having like a human relationship in, an, in a very inhuman system kind of thing. But the protagonist, the person singing the song doesn't even understand. It's almost like sing, you sing a song to a slave. It's like, they're still a slave, but for you, you're... I, I thought this was about the Bible. I don't know. Oh, well, I mean, I think that there's some of that to that as well. You know, why not? I didn't like it very much. You know what song everybody loves? King Harvest. King Harvest, a surely come. Written by Robbie Robertson, Richard Manuel on the vocals, and of course there's a lot of gang vocals going on there. Uh, and John Simon, interestingly enough, it's a, all, all of it's the same. Everybody's playing their normal instruments. But Paul, uh, John Simon is playing the Wurlitzer electric piano through a black box. Is this a Jimi Hendrix song? Because, oh my God, the spoken word parts are just like straight up Hendrix. This is another famous song where Robbie Robertson did not share the royalties. Levon Helm is not very happy. Uh, about this song in particular because it's a very gang song but mm-hmm. Robbie is the only one credited yeah they definitely pull off from soul and I guess funk that hasn't existed yet and uh, gospel it's just yeah. 
a real cool mashup of stuff. I love, of course, I love that it's weird. It has the same kind of jawbone feeling, but in a, totally. like a, the opposite. Oh, yeah, and, and I like the fade-out, too. I love the guitars. I think Ryan Watts is Graal Marcus, who obviously wrote the book on the band and the basement tapes and did liner notes for them, uh, he thinks that this is the peak for Robbie Robertson, hmm. and I wouldn't mind that being the peak. I mean, this this album alone is incredible, and Robbie has written some amazing, timeless songs, and this is one of them. I mean, this is such a cool... It's it's even cool in the in the scope of the... If there is a narrative through line, I mean, the very end of this, a union man shows up and tells them that their troubles are about to end, and it's a very uplifting, like... You know, I've, I've, I'm trying to improve my life. Don't judge me by my shoes. You know, I don't even have good shoes. The union man shows up and says, "We're gonna, we're gonna fight them, and we're gonna do it." You gotta go on strike. Now, and you can read that as very inspiring. Like, fuck yeah, let's do it. Let's take over. And sort of, it's almost a, the final nail in the past. It's like letting the past go because we're gonna take. The working man is going to go and get what's his. Or you can read it as, this guy's a huckster. And this guy yeah. is. And it's very dark, like, I'm being duped again, and we're watching mm-hmm. them be duped. And it's almost a commentary on, you were duped before, fighting a rich man's war. Uh, you don't even own slaves, and you're fighting for slavery. And it's almost being duped again into, you know, these unions are going to get busted, and yeah. you're going to be on the street. And the history of unions in America is very dismal and uh and, and this era in particular is is quite fraught and and the south is not one for unions especially so it's all very it's uh, it's dark when you look at it because if this is a song about the south then it's people in arkansas alabama mississippi union organizing for a union that is not going to exist as long as the north is going to have unions and the west is going to have unions so it's almost the shortest period of union growth. I mean, every state there is a right-to-work state at this point because the unions have been completely destroyed. So this poor character is getting involved in something that is ultimately going to fail, just like our characters in Dixie. You know, it's it's interesting. No, I'm glad you said something because I did feel that way a little bit. But I was like, is this like an anti-union song? Because it, the character does feel much very swept away in it. Not totally. Not like they're making an active choice. They're just kind of like, okay, shit's kind of. Messed up. Maybe yeah. I, I need an answer. I need help. I don't know. are about yeah. to land. Yeah. I'm glad we paid those union dues. Just don't judge me by my shoes. I think it's very uplifting. And I, and I like to read it as like, fuck yeah. Like we're turning a corner here. We're moving somewhere else. And I think that really makes it what it is. And I think the solo is amazing. I think every part of it is like a classic, classic band song. Love this song to death. Kelly, we are we're, we're done with the band, and we're done with Islands forever, forever and ever. Are you happy week two that you're listening to the band? Oh yeah, I mean this this album is really good. I mean I already um, kind of explained it, but it's 
the growth is evident. Like it's really obvious that they figured some shit out and they really were focusing on songwriting mm-hmm. and trying to pull stuff together, still being creative. But I, I just didn't, it's so interesting for me doing this. It's my favorite part about doing this podcast, not just like doing fun months like the band or what it got three, uh, but just the idea of exploring history through music. And I don't know a lot of stuff about what happened before, <laughs> just generally speaking. Um, but I, I mean, I've always, I love music, so that's the, an easy through for me. Um, and to think that like CCR, which mm-hmm. I also didn't know it only around for five years and then broke up very contentiously. Yeah. Um, like this, the band was just there, like doing this badass shit. Like CCR, I know. I, you everyone's heard their songs they're, yeah. they're still in rotation right and uh even Leonard Skinner like all this stuff that I would think well yeah that's those are the guys that did that the Roots Rock the right. um, Southern Rock and like that's them right and like this the band has never been in that conversation for me and anybody like I've ever talked to or heard music around which like, is wild yeah like I mean I've heard the way everyone's heard the way but for me that was like a one-off and if anything they were aping those other bands because right. I didn't know like how much earlier it was <laughs> yeah exactly so it's so cool to listen to these creative musicians come together and and really craft these songs on this album um, and form a lot of what, for better or worse, will will come out of the South. Like, it's unfortunate that something like um, Old Dixie will become this like terrible anthem for people who want to misappropriate and misremember history. Yeah. Um, but. Yeah, that, like that sound I don't know they, they just did so much cool shit and I didn't realize they were the originators and it's a bummer because mm-hmm. I feel like I mean I don't know not everyone is me but I can't help but feel like there's a lot of people who have no idea that this the, the band existed yeah. and that they were responsible for so many of the sounds that would end up dominating even the next ne- decade yeah I think it's we're, we're doing a public service here yeah. with the band so if you have not listened to it stop <laughs> listening to us talk about it fucking listen to them uh, it's incredible and um, and next week we're going to be delving into two fairly decent records. We're about to hit that sweet spot where we're sort of in the middle stage uh, period here. But we're going to be listening to two records next week. Stage Fright, uh, which is the next one after this. So I think 1970. And then uh, Northern Lights, Southern Cross, um, which is from 19, I want to say 74, possibly. We've got a couple big songs. Time to Kill, Shape I'm In, our classics. Uh, W.S. Walcott Medicine Show is a always a like banger to end the show with uh and then my favorite song of all time acadian driftwood off of northern lights and i'll be honest i don't listen to northern lights that often so acadian driftwood is like my my favorite song and of course ophelia so we've got a ton of hits next week so i'm excited to talk about them and uh we're getting to the apex of this stuff so it's really fun i found this so far really interesting to talk about the two quintessential records of the band uh juxtaposed with kind of their more middling and older, worser material. Um, so now it's cool to be getting closer in where you can sort of easily see 70 to 74 and then 73 and 72 juxtaposed. So so we'll be back here next week. Um, we are a real podcast, SOTWpod.com. We, in addition to doing band stuff, we also talk about Bob Dylan. Have you heard of the guy? <laughs> we talk about Bob Dylan. So we're currently uh, finishing out season two of our show. Uh, so wherever you are in time, you can join us there sotwpod.com and uh, at sotwpod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all that kind of shit. We will see you next week or whenever you listen to this. Stage Fright, Northern Lights, Southern Cross. Do your homework. We'll see you then. Kelly, thanks for joining me on this great ride. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks, man. 